Yeah, uh, and I, I, I wonder if um, the the past year or so with the pandemic, in, in a way, it might be kind of an ideal time to keep people plugged in, because so many people um, are at home. I know veterinarians are are seeing most veterinarians in in Canada and the U.S. at least are seeing uh, a huge demand for appointments. And you know, as we often speculate, it's because people are at home, right? And they're they're seeing what's going on uh, with their animals. So. There, there may be a bit of a silver lining there. Sorry for saying sorry media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Little. And this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and this is the Per Podcast. Um, Dr. Susan, you did yes. a wonderful job, but you didn't leave a lot of time Thank for you. our, you know, wonderful magician that set, puts this podcast together. I know. After the three. I know. <laughs> I, I realized that, like, right after it came out, I thought, oh, Ben's going to have trouble editing this one. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so, but we're very excited. This is the second episode of uh, amazing podcast we had last week uh, yes. with an amazing guest uh, talking about the uh, um, the Morris Animal Foundation. And I'm very happy uh, that Dr. Kelly Deal is back with us because we have so many questions left. So, so it's hello, Kelly. Hi. <laughs> thanks again for having me back. <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful pleasure. We're, we're very excited to have you here. It's so much fun. I had so much fun last week. So we will hopefully have equal amounts of fun this week. Yeah. So this is a, um, I think it's time for us to start delving uh, into some of the, of the studies because I know that Morris Animal Foundation has funded, uh, gosh, you, you, I don't know if you know what the total number is in cats, but I'm sure it's a lot um, over the years. Um, so we should have a, a look at some of the current studies and so on. But you know what I'd like to ask you first, if any particular feline study kind of sticks out in your mind, you know, was there anyone that you that um, really impressed you or that you think really stands out in terms of its contribution to feline medicine or feline welfare? Kind of just interested in what what catches your eye. Yeah, that's a great question, Susan, and a tough one sometimes. I think what I didn't realize until I got to Morris is kind of how many little pots Morris has had its fingers in over the years. But there are some that I think I particularly jump out. One is the for the development of the first feline leukemia virus vaccine. And that was done Morse funded some of the very, you know, beginning research on that. And that's one we can kind of see a direct line towards the development of the vaccine. So that's an old one that, you know, definitely I think is really exciting and, you know, obvious for a lot of folks. Another is, you know, when I look back through our number of studies, another one that I think we funded a lot of research in in the 90s were some of the changes we saw when people started to look again at kidney diets, right? And I think all of us know that there was a lot of 
discuss, you know, we learned about protein and all that stuff probably back in the 60s. And again, even Dr. Morse Sr. was looking at that in dogs even earlier than that. But I, in this early 1990s, for those of veterinarians who recognize the name Scott Brown at University of Georgia, we funded a lot of Scott's research when he really started to try to tease out that whole phosphorus question, right? And fat and protein and how much. And, and so a lot of that, that information that went in that we now take, right? It's used to create prescription diets and refine them. Um, that Morse had a lot of, of uh, information, you know, participated in that. One of my favorite more recent studies is if you've ever been to a shelter or, you know, you go to PetSmart or Petco, right? And they always have the little room with like, would you like to adopt a cat here, right? And you know, those little boxes and the tubes that go between the, the different cages, we actually funded a lot of that research from the very first gal, I mentioned the Happy Healthy Cat campaign in our in the last episode. And part of that was shelter medicine and someone um, uh, at University of California, Davis, Dr. Kate Hurley was really interested in, and she designed these cages. If you can, we have these terrific pictures of her welding stuff because she was making the passages and the tubes. And so something which we now look at and see all the time, Morris had a piece of way back when, when we were looking in that particular campaign. And I think that's really fun. And the pictures are just hilarious. I don't think I could weld um, things, but of course they had to, right? They were just kind of figuring it out on their own. Like, how do we design cages? And, you know, a big focus was minimizing stress and stress-related diseases. I think upper respiratory, everybody knows about that. So how do we prevent upper respiratory infections, which can just, you know, run through a shelter or a rescue pretty quickly. And that was part of that focus. And it was cage design to, as it influences disease, which is really cool, not cage design you know, to make cats excited about crawling through tubes, but but that, so that was really good. I think one that we're more recent um, is we funded uh, some of the very, very early beginning research in um, the FIP blocking, right? The coronavirus agent, which now is a black market drug, right? Um, that people are using. We funded the original research part of it at Wichita State and also when Dr. Niels Peterson at UC Davis, as I think everybody knows, he did the study where he kind of looked at it right in um, their shelters out there. So it went from, you know, sort of an experimental drug that we helped fund to that trial. And it is right, one of the better things that we've ever seen for a really terrible, lousy disease that we do, don't do a very good job treating or understanding. So those are some of, I think, in the past, um, things that really, really jump out at me. But I'm, I'll tell you, it's like we have a little finger everywhere um, in, in lots of different things. I think the Fat Cat study, which is now moved, I think we, people have moved on, but Fat Cat was actually a study looking at aspirin versus clopidogrel, which is also Plavix, right, for the treatment of uh, arterial thromboembolism in cats. And I think people have moved on and decided, well, Plavix is really good, but I'm old enough in practice 
that I remember, right, using aspirin because it was all we had. And then this new drug comes out, Plavix, and can we use it in cats? And that was a really seminal study that showed that Plavix was better. And um, now, again, we moved on and we're funding studies to look at Plavix and other stuff and all the different um, uh, genetics behind clopidogrel. So I think, again, those are a sampling of the things we've done, but like a, like a spider in its web, we've, which is a terrible image, sorry. Um, we've had our fingers in a lot of stuff um, over the years. And that's so cool because I, I also uh, hear some really famous names that were probably st starting up with some some money that uh, that uh, the Mar uh, Morris Animal Foundation uh, gave it to them, and then became these these very famous researchers at the end. So that's that's great to hear these success stories because you know I think a lot of people don't realize that the the process that you go through as a researcher when when you get a grant is that you also have to report back uh and and so that 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 is that information that you can use one to let your sponsors know but also to to show that it is successful to give money to uh you know institutes like you because the money is not uh it doesn't disappear you know you invest it in something and then you get information back that is really really good for the veneer community yeah, for sure. And we try to mix it a little bit, right? Um, we'll often, uh, you know, when people are, we talked about the grants process last time is, you know, you want to always take the best, right? So you don't want to jigger around with the with the order too much. Um, but at the same time, a lot of our advisory boards will go, well, this is really practical and this is great and we should fund this. And this is a little bit more esoteric, so we should fund this. And um, again, there's, there's this huge portfolio of stuff that we fund based on what we see. And But we do try to think a little bit about mixing up a bit all the time, right? Uh, on what we're trying to fund, not just always the most pressing problem, but different problems that are cropping up in, in feline medicine. And that's and, and that's great. And and we talked last week a little bit about this huge study that you do with golden retrievers, where you start really when they're really young, and then you follow them for for lots of years. I think you're probably in the middle or halfway or a little bit farther than halfway right now uh, in that study. Um, but did, and, and so that's the first question: How is that going? And second is: Are you will you ever be planning to do something like that in cats? Because I I think it would be so interesting to see to get one of those lifetime studies in cats. Yeah, absolutely. So just, um, we are golden retriever lifetime study. We enrolled our first dogs in 2012. So we are coming up on nine years. And so our dogs are average age is a little over seven now. Wow. And I know it's amazing. And so we are a little bit over halfway through it's going well, we're down our cohort, was 3,044 dogs. We're down to about 2,400. Um, some of those are dogs that have just dropped out over the years, and some of them, unfortunately, are dying, right? And uh, just briefly, the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study is really a cancer risk factor study, right? Goldens have a high risk of cancer. We're following everything, but right, we're looking at that. And of course, Goldens are dying of cancer, I hate to say it, and we're seeing a precipitous increase in our um, number of our cohort that are dying, um, which is a double-edged sword. We sure hate to lose them, but those are 
that's our endpoints, right? We knew it was going to happen, and we're hoping that we get some valuable data from them. You know, as far as the cat thing, we have kicked it around. So that's you guys are hearing it first uh, about you know, do we want to do something similar in cats, or do we want to do? I mean, we've we've thought about some other big longitudinal prospective studies using um, looking at cats, cats and dogs, um, and different different things. So that is on the horizon. We will probably start that before we even finish um, the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study, which projected original end date was 2024. Um, hard to believe that's only three years away. I think that's reasonable that we will be done then, but we will probably launch something else that will be at least a similar type of longitudinal study, which would include cats in the next uh, couple of years. Yeah, and, and and you do when you do a longitudinal study in cats, you first you have to realize that cats normally live a little longer than golden retrievers, so it takes a little bit more time. But for instance, like chronic kidney disease would be such a great topic to look at longitudinally because we know it's, it's such it has such a high prevalence in cats in older cats, and and getting a little bit more longitudinal information would be wonderful. I think so. Uh, so this is this is a call to. Any sponsor that's listening right now, uh, if you want to do it, uh, call uh, the uh, Morris Animal Foundation uh, to uh, send your support for this kind of studies. I, I think it will be uber cool. Yeah, I think so too. Um, you know, and I think we're also looking at, um, uh, you know, the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study is a $32 million study, right, over 15 Oh, 12, 12, 13 years plus we have to pay longer, right? Because we've got all these samples stored. So I, we're looking at another longitudinal study, but maybe do something a little bit different. Like you said, um, you know, maybe think about a very cone down, um, you know, looking at a particular disease and also making use of technological advances, right? As far as, um you know, people can, more of a citizen science approach, right? And yeah. um, people use their phones and can uh, really capture a lot of data for us in a different way than filling out a questionnaire, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does make a, a, a lot of sense. Um, I know there is one feline, I only know of one longitudinal study being done in cats, and it's at Bristol University in the UK. So they have a, a, a a longitudinal study called Bristol Cats, um, enrolling kittens in lifetime, you know, following following them along. And they're beginning to publish some uh, studies out, out of that project. And what's interesting to me is that you can ask different questions and you can attempt to answer the questions in different ways with a, a longitudinal study. So I, I, you know, I think it's important for people to realize there's some questions you really just can't answer without having a, a, a longitudinal study. Um, yet they are, they can be tough to do. Um, other than the money involved, it's just hard to, you know, wrangle, herd the cats, I guess, as it were, and uh, and keep people plugged in for what could be, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of staying involved uh, with a study. And so um, I'd be interested to know how did Morris try to overcome some of those barriers, keeping people plugged into the study um, over the years. 
Yeah, I, uh, uh, that's sort of a holy grail, Susan, um, for, for people. Uh, it has been not always easy. I think, I think one of the things with a study like um, the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study is you tend to select for people who are really into it in the first place, right? And um, we've tried the to keep people engaged. We have like a monthly newsletter where we give them updates. We have uh, had some, oh, we have had webinars directed just for them. I mean, anybody can come, but really to, to try to discuss what we're finding. I think the hardest thing for people now, a lot of people are just into it, right? They've got the rhythm down. They're doing really well. I think for some people, you know, they got three or four years into it and are like, okay, so what did you find? And trying to tell people and, and keep people engaged when you're like, this is going to, this is a long haul, right? We've got to get way to the end before we can do some, make some um, correlations, particularly between disease processes. Like we got to wait for dogs to get cancer to answer some of the questions. So, uh, you know, I think trying to constantly be, um, you know, if they have questions, we answer them reaching out all the time in emails. We also have a fantastic group of volunteers who are people in the study who they have their own Facebook page, they post pictures. So they have their own little group, which has been hugely helpful for us, right? Where they kind of talk amongst themselves, they provide support to each other. If a dog uh, dies, those people are there for the other folks. And they have been a huge help in providing that rah-rah cheerleading piece for us. And we would not be able to do it without this group of volunteers, some of which, um, some of these people have the pilot dogs. We had the first 50 dogs. Their dogs were pilot dogs. And um, they are really, really, really motivated. They helped with recruiting when we first were recruiting. And they have been just invaluable in that like sort of social piece of keeping everyone engaged and they, and they do, they took, we, we pipe in once in a while with them, but they also do a lot of self uh, supporting of each other. And um, uh, they've been invaluable. They ask questions, they answer questions. A lot of the folks uh, who are really experienced, we have now a core team of them uh, who can also answer questions. So it's not always the staff at Morris, but these guys can also help with that. So that's been very, very important, but it is hard keeping people engaged. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I wonder if um, the, the past year or so with the pandemic, in, in a way, it might be kind of an ideal time to keep people plugged in because so many people um, are at home. I know veterinarians are are seeing, most veterinarians in, in Canada, in the U.S. at least, are seeing uh, a huge demand for appointments. And, you know, as we often speculate it's because people are at home, right, and they're, they're seeing what's going on uh, with their animals. So, there, there may be a bit of a silver lining there. Um, I did want to um, ask you about a, a couple of studies. So a couple that caught my eye that are on the Morris Animal Foundation website. And again, that's morrisanimalfoundation.org. So you should go check out the website and see what's going on. So a couple caught my eye that I want to um, uh, uh, ask you about. One is um, 
to develop a blood test for a fairly newly discovered virus. And I'm a closet virologist, so <laughs> new viruses are exciting to me. Uh, and of course, that's the Hepadna virus. So the virus that says suspected to cause liver disease in, in cats. Um, it's amazing to me that we're still discovering new viruses. So I'd be interested to hear a little bit about, uh, about that study. And the other one, which is kind of dear to my heart, is uh, what seems to be a never-ending quest to find effective treatments for oral cancer in cats. So especially the oral squamous cell carcinomas. Um, you know, I lost one of my own cats to that. And it, you know, it remains a wicked disease. Um, so I'm glad the fight is still going on. So I'm kind of interested to hear your take on, on those two studies. Yeah, for sure. So the hepatinavirus diagnostic test actually has grown out of another study we funded. And this is one, the researchers were originally based in Australia, now they're in Hong Kong. And what these researchers were doing, so I'm going to go back a little bit, but it, I, hopefully it makes sense to everyone, is um, they wanted to look, now that we have these like really great advanced, right, molecular biology techniques, to look for evidence of virus signatures in cats with a variety of diseases. And if we think back to the whole feline leukemia story, right? Um, I think those of us who practiced, and I'm old enough to remember what I called the pre-FELV vaccine days and the post-FELV vaccine days when it comes to cancer. And I think we all know that feline leukemia virus vaccine has really helped, right, in knocking back a lot of cancers we used to see in cats that were related to virus. It doesn't mean cancers are gone, we still deal with them. But uh, there were, I think, a lot of cancers that were feline leukemia virus associated, so great. So now that there are these advanced molecular techniques, these virologists and very nice cat people um, in, in um, Australia uh, just said, hey, why don't we start looking for other viral signatures in cats because maybe if we find them, right, and we can link them to disease, then we can vaccinate against them. And I know, and I think everybody knows, like a lot of cancers are not viral based, but cats are weird, right? And they do have these weird viruses. Um, we funded uh, a group that out of Colorado State University who found gamma herpes viruses, which are also possibly linked to cancer. So anyway, that's the basis of the study. If we can find the virus, maybe we can make a vaccine and stop a disease. So right now the folks um, found this hepadenovirus, which is a, a liver virus, and they're looking at ways to develop a good test for it, right? Rather than this sort of laborious, um, you know, genetic sequencing, which is not, which is cool, but not very um, practical. And they're also looking, because there's some evidence, maybe this is associated with liver disease. And for those of us that, right, just saw, right, cholangiohepatitis in cats and trying to treat that, you know, boy, would that be exciting um, if that was somehow linked to virus, just like people who have hepatitis, you know, hepatic viruses, um, and a way of treating that or cancer. So that's, that group is working on that. And I think that is really cool because I also think that their work could serve as a sort of, um, oh, guidebook, right? For other people, if they're looking for, for, 
novel viruses. And I think we're just really scratching the surface of what's out there now that we can look and find stuff. That's great. That's great. Um, and as the director of science and communication, I also see that you are a colleague of ours doing a podcast yourself. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, sure. I do a podcast called Fresh Scoop, which is uh, aimed toward veterinarians. We have a fair number of veterinary students and we jump, we get, we get uh, folks who have done research with us to kind of jump on and discuss discuss their research, it, it take a little bit of a deep dive. Um, sometimes we do more general questions, but also we theorize about different, um, especially with our wildlife people. But we have had, we had some folks come on and talk about that whole clopidogrel. If anyone's familiar with Dr. Josh Stern, who's cardiologist at UC Davis, and Dr. Ron Lee is a researcher also at Davis. He's a criticalist and they're looking at the clopidogrel stuff. So yeah, we do have, we have cat stuff there. We talked with Dr. Hurley. We've done some behavior. So yeah, listen, uh, jump in and listen to the podcast sometime. Um, but also I want to get to Susan's question about the oral squamous cell carcinoma, a hateful, hateful tumor in cats. I think all of us um, know how dreadful it is. And the stuff, Susan, that they're looking at, it's out of University of Minnesota has done a lot of it. And what they're using is a drug and a, some concepts. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, ugh, I'm trying to explain it in a, in a good way. That's not so detailed. It's, it's a molecular, you know, there's a, this molecule that's important in transport that a blocking agent might help with cancer. So that's very general, but they've used it in people with oral squamous cell because we know people get a lot of oral squamous cell right from smoking, chewing tobacco, and um, cats are not a bad model. They're a little different, but this has shown some promise in vitro. So it does look like it could work. And, um, you know, they're, they're doing a little bit more work, but boy, if that could move to the clinic, that would be, oh my gosh, that would just be so huge for us um, who've seen cats, who've had a cat with it, which was, um, my parents had a one and boy, it was one of the most horrifying diseases I think we ever had to deal with. Yeah, and I'm heartbreaking, yep. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I, I did a little bit of research in oral squam too. And I think the reason that there it's interesting for humans is that it is a bad tumor in a narrow space. And so, Although the tumor is not that bad because it metastasized quickly, it's really localized, but you don't have a lot of space there. And so often in cats, when it's, for instance, under the tongue or in the jaw, it is so difficult to remove them completely. And then they're very resistant to the normal conventional therapies that we have. And that makes it such a difficult tumor. Um, yeah. It, it's yeah. really aggressive. And then, of course, because it's in the mouth, uh, you, you, the cats are suffering quite a lot, too. And, and we often don't talk about uh, the suffering itself, but clients are less likely to go for treatments where you cannot prove that the suffering is significantly decreased. So right, right, right. No, I totally agree. I um, you know, I as a GI person, I can't tell you how many 
feeding tubes, I'd pop in these, right? For, first of all, I'd find them, right? Because the cat's not eating them and they're coming into me first. Then, you know, you send them to oncology and you're putting a feeding tube in. And I remember describing it to people like, there's really, really horrible, painful disease going on in your cat's mouth, but the rest of the cat's fine, right? And that's so bad for, it's so sad for people because you have this horrible, painful disease up in the head that's not move, you know, it's locally aggressive, but the rest of the cat is fine. And that is, uh, yeah, it's a really, it's a really bad disease. And our, our options are lousy, right? You try to irradiate them. Well, that doesn't make the cat feel that great either. So if we had a blocking agent that you just gave and it would help, um, at least slow the tumor. I mean, I think the reality is it's not going to be necessarily a cure, but it's a slowing down where they can be comfortable and not have a bunch of side effects from your treatment. I think that would be super valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're almost at the end of this time too. So I'll have Dr. Susan ask one more question before <laughs> we have to sadly end the show. This has been so yeah. interesting. My gosh, the time does fly. Okay, I'll get one last question in quick. I'm always interested in what research is going on for pain medications in cats, because um, even though we've uh, seen more come to uh, fruition in the last, say, five to 10 years, we still have room for improvement. So does Morris Animal Foundation have any studies in the works on, on pain meds? Um, right now we're kind of wrapping some up. Um, it is a area of great interest for us, which I know sounds kind of wimpy, but um, we <laughs> definitely are looking for more. We just wrapped up some, I think we've worked, we've worked a lot um, in the past with, I think everyone knows Dr. Duncan LaSalle's who's at uh, NC State and a really uh, a, a guy who's obviously really at the forefront of looking at pain management in animals. We've done some work with uh, folks at the University of Montreal in pain management too. And I think there, there's some stuff we funded on looking at pain scales, right? Cats are right. not easy, right? To figure out pain um, uh, issues. One of, if I can put in a plug for one that we did, that was such a slick little study. And it was uh, Dr. Paulo's, Stigal. And yep. uh, what he did was, and if you've ever seen it, it was, and it basically it was just squirting some bupivacaine in the um, peritoneal cavity after spay, right? because he felt like, hey, everybody's got bupivacaine. We, and he his interest was really uh, high volume practices or like shelters, um, rescue agencies, right, that are doing a lot of spay neuter. Their money and resources are always tight for those folks. And it was phenomenally successful to the point where I listened to a recent um, uh, lecture he gave for Wasaba, so the World Small Animal Veterinary Association, where that's becoming like almost a norm. And that was just, I think that's, I, those little studies, and I don't mean to disparage, like it's a good study, but it wasn't like fancy lab culture stuff. It was just such a great idea, right? And he did such a great job with it. And it's entering, I think, the norm and a standard of care. And to know that we funded that is, I think, really great. So we're always on the lookout for those. And those get really looked at very, very carefully because it is a real interest of the foundation to look at pain management studies. Yeah, that's a lot right. of bang for the buck, isn't it? 
Oh, that was a, that was a sweet study. I just got to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you have these those those quick wins. Those, those yeah. make your day. Yeah. But this has been wonderful, uh, uh, Dr. Kelly Deal. This is this 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 podcast is great. And I looked at your website. If people are interested in the um, the Morris Animal Foundation uh, podcast called Fresh Coop. Uh, they can go to uh, moralsanimalfoundation.org and type in podcast, and then you have all of them there. And I am looking at one that is episode 31, Hyperthyroidism in Cats, uh, yeah. with uh, the amazing uh, Dr. Alan Barron. So uh, yeah. so if you are interested in, uh, in listening to that podcast, please go to their website, uh, and we will improve uh, some of... Uh, your audience too. So we'll get some people go there to listen about the latest research. So they're very, very cool. And thank you for doing that. Uh, I think uh, this is episode 31. So you already did 30. That's yes. wonderful. Yep. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. So this is the end of uh, the per podcast uh, uh, with Dr. Deal. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, if you're interested in the podcast, uh, please go to perpodcast.net where we will also put in our show notes some of the things that we talked about, especially the where you can find uh, uh, the foundation and uh, and what you can do. Uh, and uh, we also are on social media with the handle per podcast. And Dr. Susan, am I forgetting something because I'm going really yes. fast and my yes. head is spinning? Yes, yes. You're forgetting to tell people um, to look for us on their favorite podcast app. Uh, you'll find us in uh, uh, pretty much any place that uh, you'll find podcasts, like whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Um, and if you like what you hear, please leave us a good review because that warms our little hearts. You know, it it's, it's it's lonely out in podcast land sometimes. It really it is. Does. Yes. It is. So it works it is. Yeah. yeah. And it and, helps and tell, and tell your it. family members and friends and that sort of things yeah. that were that were a pretty nice podcast to listen to. Um, <laughs> and uh, and we would love to have you part of our family. So our, yeah. our feline friends friendly family. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, so thank Dr. you very Neil, much. Thank you so much for being on. And uh, looking forward to talking to you in the future. Yeah, yep. we'll have to catch up down the road and uh, and hear some more about what's going on. Right. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Excellent. Can you can you let us know one more time where people can find more information about the Morris Animal Foundation? Absolutely. So if you go to our website at Morris Animal Foundation, so that's one word dot org, we have everything there from you know, just our blogs with different information. And you can also search through our grants and see what we've done. We have copies of our quarterly newsletter there if you want to flip through those and see what we've done in CATS for sure. You can totally search and, and find both a current and past. Us and things. if you have a great cat research idea, don't hesitate to reach out to uh, the Morris Animal Foundation. Thank you, Dr. Deal. Uh, thank you, Dr. Susan. Uh, for being on with us and we'll see you next week bye bye dr susan little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat only hospitals in ottawa canada she is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks the cat clinical medicine and management and august consultations in feline internal medicine along with three cats she also admits to owning two dogs, and you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. 
Dr. Yule Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at G-V-E-T-S-X. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast. 